Our scripture reading this morning is found in 1 John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. 1 John chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, our ushers do have Bibles available. Just raise your hand and they'll bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our service this morning. Reading is a continuing a continuation of our series in 1st John. This is our third message in that series. If you didn't hear the previous series, you can um, look at um, Sweet Communion on Facebook and you can get that sermon message. Uh, if you have any problems with that, you can see Lawrence, our tech guy, to show you how you can get that uh, from the internet and hear the message in its entirety. 1 John chapter 2, let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's word. Just a short reading today, our text is chapter 2, verse 7 through verse 17. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 through 17. Please follow along with me as I read aloud. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. May God bless this reading to us that we might understand and we might be challenged to walk in obedience to God's word. Let's bow now for a word of prayer. After a word of prayer, our choir comes with special music before the preaching of God's word today. Father, we say thank you for your many blessings that we have seen throughout this week. You have sustained us. You have kept us. You have brought us back together again to hear your word, to fellowship with one another. We thank you for this meeting place and this opportunity that we have to, to worship you, to praise you, to fellowship again with each other. We pray that you would bless this service now, that you would bless the um, 
preaching of your word so that the message is clear and that your Holy Spirit in his power speaks to our hearts, challenges us in obedience to you, in submission to you, in examining ourselves correctly and taking that assessment that comes from you and living according to the challenge that you give us. We thank you for each one here today. We pray that you would uh, minister to each one. It's been, it's, it was your purpose that each one would be here today, and I would pray that that purpose would be fulfilled as we hear your word. We thank you um, for your power in our lives. We do pray for those who are sick and ailing in so many different ways, and we just pray for their comfort, for their encouragement, that you would um, help them to trust and to depend on you. Lord, these physical weaknesses just tear us down sometimes, spiritually and mentally, and we need to persevere, and we need to hear your word. We need to have encouragement from your people. So we pray that we would provide that uh, to those who are sick and ailing, those, especially those who can't be here today, and that you would use your word to, to encourage their hearts. And you use their testimony as they trust in you. You are able to heal every sickness. You are able to, to heal every disease. And yet we know that it's your purpose to allow some sicknesses and to allow diseases for whatever your purpose is. We just pray, Lord, that those of us who suffer through those might suffer in a way that we are trusting you, that we are a good testimony in you, and that we bring glory to you, even in how we endure our trials and afflictions and sicknesses and, and the such. So help us, Lord, to be that testimony to those who look on us, especially family members who aren't saved and loved ones and um, those we work with and those who we interact with, that they might see from our lives a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the song that was played during the offering, He's Coming Back. May that be our hope. May that hope be seen um, in the way that we live, faithful, steadfast lives that know that you are in control, that aren't shaken up by the nonsense that we see happening all around us, but hearts that cling to you, you as our hope, you as our help, and you as our redeemer, our healer our God and our Savior. We thank you for that. Bless now this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our series in 1 John, we have seen that John has as a purpose to challenge those who profess to know Christ and don't really know him. They just say with their mouths. He has that as a purpose. At the same time, he has a purpose to encourage those who are true believers and show them that they 
stand on Christ. They stand on solid ground, and they can be confident in Christ. And so their faith is sure, and they can uh, be encouraged in that. So both of those things are going on at the same time. John is, 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 is smacking down people who say that they're believers and don't show it in the way that they live. And he's encouraging those who are true believers because they show in how they live who they actually are. So one of the tests that John gives in his epistle is the test we'll look at today. It's called the test of love. How does love play in the life of a believer and what should it look like? You know, the world talks a lot about love. Well, from love songs to you done me wrong songs to, 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 to everything in between. And we find out that they're very mixed up about love. Today, the world says if two people love each other, it's all right no matter what they do and no matter who they are. It could be two males or two females and they want to call that love. And yet God says in 1 John that he is love. In fact, he, in fact, defines love. So as believers, we do not let the world define for us what love is. They have no idea what real love is. God is love, and he describes his love for us, and he puts it in a person and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at this test of love starting at 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. The first thing he says is, I have for you an old commandment and a new commandment. And so the first point of my message here is that this love is, in fact, a commandment. Think about it. This love is a commandment. He says, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Now, he, he right away strays away from the world's description. The world's description is if you feel like it, go with it. You fall in love, and so you go with the flow. God says it's not a fall at all. It's an unpurposed. It is commanded by, uh, by God to us that we love. And what does he command? First of all, Jesus said that this, is, this summarizes all of the Old Testament, that you first of all love God with all your heart. When Jesus was asked, what is the, what is the Old Testament? What's the law? He says, I'm going to summarize it very simply for you. Is that you love God with all your heart. That's Matthew 22. And that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says you can describe all of the law and all, all of God's, uh, the Old Testament as this vertical relationship of love that we have for God, which creates in us a horizontal relationship of love that we have with fellow beings, fellow human beings. And so he says, this is an old commandment. It's, it's not really new. This is what God intended way from the beginning. In fact, he uses this phrase, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And what he means by that is it's been spoken in the Old Testament and Jesus reiterated it. This commandment that you love. Again, it is a commandment. You have from the beginning, you've heard it, and it's summarized in what, <laughs> what Jesus has said. So the first point of this message is that, it, that, is that love is commanded. It's a commandment. The second point is what he really illustrates throughout the whole book when he says this. He says in verse 8, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Just pause there. He says this is a new commandment, and that is our second point. Love is not just a commandment. It's a principle. Love is a principle. What do we mean by that? Love is what describes true believers. It's what shows us who we really are. He says it this way. In verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. He's saying this love is descriptive. It helps us see who the true believers are because it was in him, in Jesus, and therefore it is in you. It's not just that it's commanded. He's saying it being there or not shows who you are. Not that you got to manufacture it as a command, but you show it as a substance of who you are. When you cut an orange open, you expect to get some orange juice, amen? When you split a, a lemon open, you expect to see lemon juice. When you cut a believer open, when you examine one from the inside, you expect to see Jesus, <laughs> and that's shown as love. If it ain't there, throw that one away. That ain't a real believer. It ain't the real thing. He says that in so many powerful ways. Let's look at it as we examine this passage. He says, it's true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Back in John, in, in the Gospel of John, you can turn there with me, John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said it this way. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's speaking to his disciples, and he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. And it's not so much a commandment as it is a principle. This is the principle of being a believer, being a disciple, a follower of Christ. He says, how people will know that you are a true follower? Because you have love one for another. 
And how, what's, how is that love described? He says it this way. You love one another just as I have loved you. Now that's not watered down at all, isn't it? Jesus loved us so much that he gave up his life to pay for our eternity, to secure our eternity. He gave us what we could not provide for him for ourselves. He provided it in a very painful way. It says because he loved us. And so he says the true mark, the mark of a true believer is to have a love like Jesus inside of us. He says that's not an option. It's not like, okay, if you have it, that's kind of nice. I, 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 I give you, you know, a, a hand clap. He said, no, if you don't have it, you're not a true believer. What kind of love did Jesus have? He laid down his life for us. Back in that passage in 1 John chapter 2, he says this. As he makes his point, verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He said, this is not an optional element of your life. It is essential. Whoever doesn't have it is in darkness. Whoever says he's following Christ, says he's walking in the light, but doesn't love his brother. He uses a stronger term, hates his brother. But that, that's, that's true, isn't it? To hate is not to love. The one who doesn't love his brother then is not a true believer. He's walking in darkness. He says that again, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's walking in darkness. He's blinded. He thinks he's a true follower of Christ, but in fact, his own heart reveals that he isn't because he doesn't have that love for his brother. Now, later on in, in 1 John, he begins to talk about what that looked like, and he goes back to Genesis, and he talks about Cain and Abel, and he talks about how Cain hated his own brother and killed his brother. He says that, that's a description of an unbeliever, who goes against his own brother, who doesn't love his brother. Why did, he, why did he kill his brother? Because his brother was accepted by God and he wasn't. People want to say that they love God. And yet they don't show that they love God's people. In fact, it's easier for some people to show love towards people that they don't know outside. And we, they claim they love the world, but you don't love God's people is what he's talking about. There needs to be a love for God's people. I see people, I see people have more love for, for a pet than they have for the people of God. Walk their dog faithfully every day. 
Come to church. No, I ain't got time for that. I'll do that if I get time. Make that a priority. Make time for that. In fact, he's not commanding. He says, look, that shows who you really are. Those who are God's people walk by that principle of love. I think we have a lot to understand about love, and if we would simply look at Jesus, a lot of those things would be cleared up. It's not a mushy, gushy, I'm going to tell you all the time, giving you flowers, love. It's a real-life living love. We're going to get to an example of that when we look at Romans chapter 12 a little bit later. But where does this love come from? I believe in the next verses, in verse 12 through 14, he writes something that is a little bit hard to, to, to kind of put into an outline form. But I think very simply what he says is this. Here's the power behind this principle. Here's the enablement for this love. And I'm going to show it to you in a, in a very group of people. Let's talk about little children. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So he lists a class of people, and then he says something about them. And then he repeats it again. In the middle of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And you can spend a lot of time trying to figure what are the different nuances are there and what he's saying. But I think it's very straightforward. At least for me, I just take a very straightforward approach. What does he say to each group as he describes an aspect of their walk with Christ or their salvation? What comes out of trusting Christ? He says to little children, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. They didn't do that to themselves. God did that for them. God forgave their sins for his name's sake, for Jesus' name. In other words, it was Jesus who paid the penalty of death on the cross. He shed his blood so that his followers could have their sins forgiven. So we have, this, we have this view of love that love just glosses over everything and acts like it never happened. That's not the love Jesus had. He says, I know they've sinned. I know they cannot come before the Father. I paid their price with an actual death, a real bloody, painful death by the hands of wicked people, Jesus gave his life voluntarily so that he could accomplish the forgiveness of sins for his people. So he says, I write to you little children, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers, he says, because you know him who is from the beginning. As a result of the love that God showed through his son Jesus, men are able to be in relationship with God Almighty, to know God. You know him 
who is from the beginning. He says, I write to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. What allows, what enables a young man to overcome wickedness and the evil one? He, he specifically says, this is not just evil in general. That's one of the misunderstandings people have today, that wickedness and evil are, are not personified. Yes, they are. They have a person in the person of Satan himself. And he says, I've given you young men power to overcome Satan. That's a lot of power. It's the love that God has displayed through his son that brings that about in the life of believers. And so no matter what category you find yourself in, you see that God's love, when you've trusted Christ, has impacted your life with your sins so that your sins are forgiven. You have a relationship with God, and you overcome evil in your life. God provides that. He enables you to do that in him. It's a real power. It's a real working in a life of a true believer. He doubles back and says again, I write to you children because you know the Father. You know the Father. You have been brought in relationship with the one who created you and the one who saved you. And you've been done that. How? How does any of this happen? How does all this happen? It happens by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not accomplished in any other way or by any other means. He says, little children, you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, verse 14, because you know him who is from the beginning. The same thing he said at the first, but it's still true. You know him. You now have relationship with him. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All of those are consequences of the results of Christ's Love and his death on the cross and that bringing us into relationship with him or trusting in him. We become strong. The word of God abides in us. The word of God lives in us. In other words, it's the word of God that is, is, is the seed for our strength. It's like nourishment and feeding us so that we can be strong and so that we can, in fact, overcome evil. God provides all that we need, and he does that through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was motivated by his love for the Father and his love for us. And he says, this love needs to be living in you. I command you to live that way, and I order that all that are mine truly live that way. It's a principle of their faith. It's not something that they have to manufacture in some false way. It is a principle of their walk with Christ. Now, we develop and we grow in our walk, understand that. But he's saying that when you know Christ, this 
power, the same power that saved you, giving you forgiveness of the sin of your sins, the same power that brought you in relationship with God the Father, the same power that gives you the strength to overcome sin, this same working produces in you a love for God and a love for God's people. It's a principle of salvation. So it's a commandment, yes, and it is a principle. Then he gives us an application of this love. Verses 15, verses 15 through 17. <coughs> so we don't get the wrong idea of the world's perspective of love. God's perspective is given to us. What does this mean? He, in essence, says this. If you're going to love properly, you're also going to hate properly. It's like looking at God's mercy and his judgment, and you understand them both as you look at them together. See, there's no need for God's mercy if his judgment isn't really real. That's why so many people are going around and says, you know, I don't believe in hell. There is no judgment of God. And they act like, wow, that, that, that just releases them. That, well, I guess it does if you want to throw away half the Bible and you want to ignore what God has said. But God says his judgment is real. And his judgment being real is what makes his love and his mercy all that more powerful and unbelievable. And so we understand what it is to love when we understand what it is to hate as well. He says it this way. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. When he's talking about the world, he's talking about the world system. He doesn't say, I want you to hate a tree or a mountain or the sunshine. He created those things and when he created them, he said they're good. What he's talking about is the evil world system that is tainted by Satan. And we often fall in the trap of that. So he's saying, don't love the ways of this world. He's even saying, don't get caught up in the comforts or the pleasures, or even the provisions of this world. Some of the things that he's telling us not to love are not necessarily evil or bad things. He's saying, don't love them. Let me explain it this way. <laughs> we are to love people and use things. instead of the other way around. Too many people love things and use people. 
Love that money and I'll use whoever I can to get it. He says you are to love people and use things. So he says don't love the pro- even the provisions of this world. Now we need provisions. You're going to live in this world. You need a job. You need income. You need a source of money so that you can sustain yourself so that you can eat, so that you can be clothed, you can have a place to stay. Those are some of the basic things that we need. But God says as you walk through this life, don't get wrapped up in the things of this life. And let me explain it this way. Don't get wrapped up in the things of this life that are temporal. Cling towards and pursue that which is eternal. Now he says that in this passage. If you look at verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he makes a distinction between that which is temporal, that which is temporary, that which will not last, against that, that which is eternal. He says, don't set your love on things, on systems that are going to break down and are not going to last. In other words, instead of that, set your heart, pursue with all of your heart that which is eternal and that which pleases God. So he says this, then order your love. Don't love the things of this world or this world system. Now he goes on to describe, he says, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, some of those things aren't necessarily bad. He says, the desires of this world. We all have de- desires or things that we need that we seek after. We need air to breathe. We need food to eat. We need to live in a certain way or we need to function in certain ways and it says we we need those things God knows that we need those but he says don't turn your heart to those things and fail to remember or to reflect or to focus on the God who made all things so he's saying don't get caught up in this temporal world now that's a message for all of us Because we live in this temporal world. And sometimes, if we're not careful, that's all we know is this temporal world. And we begin to live like we ourselves are temporal when we're not. We're not. We're not temporal. We are eternal. We will live forever. He says, don't get caught up in the mess of this world. But keep your focus on that which is eternal. What is eternal? He said, look, why don't you think about it this way? What are you going to have 200 years from now? Focus on that. Or live your life in such a way that that takes most of your drive and the minimum amount of your effort is on the stuff that's temporary. I was going throughout this week, and I was just thinking, there's so many thoughts that pop into my mind that are worthless. Or at best, unproductive. 
I began to battle in my mind what a person said and how I'm going to answer them back. And I was in a fight with that person that, that never really happened. If she said this, well, I'll tell you what. She never said that. But I went on for five minutes on that drill of what I was going to do. And then I thought, wait a minute. This don't make no sense. I'm spinning my wheels on something that is, is, is useless, that, that doesn't have significance. And I thought, how often do I do that? How often do I get caught up in the mess of this world that that's going to mean nothing probably five minutes from now? Why don't I spend my time, why don't I spend my energy, why don't I spend my love and my desires for that which is eternal? Because that truly is an investment. See, when I waste my time on stuff that ain't going to last, it, I've just wasted that time at best. At worst, I've got myself involved in stuff that just drags me down. And pulls me like, like, like someone getting stuck in the mud. Just drags you down. But when we invest in that which is eternal. That which pleases God. That which will count a hundred, two hundred, a thousand, a million years from now. Will still have significance and meaning. What is that? <laughs> Eliminates quite a few things then, doesn't it? It eliminates a lot of things that we drive after, that we search, that we expend so much our, of our energy in. And it drives us to God, that which pleases. Now, I know you asked the question, well, I can't just be walking, you know, on cloud nine all day. I got to live in this world. Yeah, you do, and I do too. But what you do is you begin to minimize those things that are temporal and you begin to emphasize and expand and think and reflect and, and meditate and focus and worship God and love those things that are eternal. You'll see how that, what it, one, one of the things it does, it begins to change your priority. It begins to change your priority. He says, he says when you love God... He becomes your priority. When you love God's people, the fellowship of God's people becomes your priority. When you love things, overtime becomes your priority. How you going to pay that, you know, master charge card becomes your priority. What you going to put next on the card. What you can shop on the internet in. Oh, I'm messing with some people now. You know, that becomes your drive and your priority and what comes next. How can I get to this next level of my job? How can I do this? How can I do that? Now, some of those things are necessary, understand, but they ought not take all of your time and all of your focus because they're not going to be around for very long. So he says, stop spending all of your time there and reprioritize so that you begin to shift your time and your focus and your priority in that which is eternal. So he says, don't love this world or the things that are in this world. Don't set your whole heart to go after that. 
You know how it is. And, you know, we were all kids once, and I don't care whether you were rich or poor. You probably had an experience like mine on Christmas. You're waiting for Christmas, and you had your list of all the stuff you wanted for Christmas. You know, that stuff meant so much to you. And then Christmas came. You got some of it. You didn't get, no, you didn't get all of it. And it just broke your day. Actually, you got all you want, and it makes your day for a day. The very next day is broke, or you found out you didn't get the updated one, or you got this, and now you need to get this to go with it. It just begins to drive you, and it doesn't let go. And you really secretly ask the question, is it worth it? Sometimes we're scared to ask that question. We need to ask it because the answer is no. It's not. It's not. Is it going to last for 100 years? <laughs> that car that we spend so much time and so much money on, working it out, making sure we got the right one and the right color and worrying about whether we got it fixed or not and, and this and that and that and this. and Is it going to be around 10 years from now? let alone 100 years from now. We invest our resources in it. Now you say, I got to invest something. I know that. But you don't have to invest it as if it's eternal. What you invest in, you begin to worship. <laughs> Whether you think you are or not, you invest in your time, you're worshiping. God says, worship me. Invest your time in me. I want to talk about loving God's people for just a minute. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, what does it look like to love God's people? Keep in mind, that's the emphasis here in John. It's not an emphasis on Loving everybody in the world. The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't love people in the world, but he's saying the real test is do you love the brothers? Do you love the people of God? That's the real test. I remember when I was young, I was number five in the line of six, and so I had brothers older than me, I had a brother younger than me. And we used to wear, I used to wear hand-me-down clothes all the time. And I got tired of wearing hand-me-down clothes. And I said, one of these days, I'm going to make my own money. I'm going to wear my own clothes. And so I began to make some money. I began to set aside my own clothes. I had a whole closet full of shoes. Unfortunately, both of my brothers wore the same size shoe as I did. And they began to... Ask, hey, man, I like them shoes. Can I wear those shoes? You know, you can only want, wear one pair at a time. I wear those shoes. I began to hate that they wanted to borrow my shoes. Go get your own shoes. A friend would come over and say, man, you got some sharp shoes. Hey, you want to wear one, man? You can have it. I begin to think about that. My own brothers, I would kill them if they touched my shoes. But somebody else 
Just give it to them. Let them use it. Let them wear it. What becomes a test is those people who are closest to us that tend to get under our skin sometimes. They're always around us. That's the real test. Not somebody out who, who, who you see once in a while. But some folks close by that you live with. Do you love God's people? In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says this. Let love be genuine. Let it be real. Now, people say, I'm just going to keep it real. But what they mean is, I'm just going to be ugly. I'm not going to change what I do. I'm just going to tell you what I don't like or how I am. He says, let love be genuine. He didn't just say, tell it like it is. He said, be like it should be. Let love be genuine. And then he says something else that goes, wrong, goes right along with love, the word abhor. Abhor what is evil. You cannot truly love if you don't also hate. In other words, you cannot love without selecting something and choosing and denying something else. When a man marries a woman, he selects her and he chooses and he pours his love out on her and he says, bye to everybody else. You're not the one. And I don't have a problem telling you, you're not the one. This is my one. This is who I'm devoted to. Therefore, I cannot be devoted to you. You can't be devoted to two. You can't have two masters. You either love the one and you hate the other. You choose the one and you do not choose the other. He says, let love be genuine. Then he says, abhor that which is evil. Hate that which goes against God's principles in your life. Hate it, he says. Abhor that which is evil, that which goes up against God. Abhor it. Not think it's okay. Not get along with it. He said, abhor it. Then he gives us some very practical things. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We have a, a group of, of, of people in society who say, I'm, I'm, I love Christ. Are you connected to a church yet? No, I'm not. Are you searching for one? Well, yeah, I am. How long have you been searching? Ten years. Yes. You're lying to yourself. You're not searching for anything. You decided to stop searching. For whatever reason, you decided that the fellowship of God's people is not significant enough for you to make it a high priority. 
The scary thing is this passage says, that says something about you. It doesn't say you're an okay person. It says you are in darkness. People would love me to water that down, but God doesn't. He says, you call it a small deal. He says, I call it huge. He says, when you do not make my people your priority, you do not make me a priority. Look what it says in verse 15, 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father sometimes ain't in him. No. The love of the Father is not in him. He makes a clear distinction. You can't walk both ways. He's saying live out the principle of your life. In fact, he's saying you're already living it out. What does it show? If you don't like what it shows, then show and, 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 and live that principle so that it shows what is right, what lines up with God's truth and God's word. Back in Romans chapter 12, I just want to finish that. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Like the last two, it gives us some practical things. Contribute to the needs of the saints he didn't say give that, guy, give that guy a dollar who's begging on the corner. He said contribute to the needs of the saints. He says make it a point. Make that your priority. If you want to give that guy a dollar, that, that's, that's, that may be fine. I'd argue with you about that. You'd be better steward than to come where people are living for Christ and you know a need and you give to that genuine need instead of just saying, I'm going to show you I love you. I'm going to give you a dollar. You don't even know that person. You don't know what they're going to do with it. But there are some you do know or some you ought to know. And you ought to get to know them. He says, contribute to their needs. Be practical in your love. Be genuine in your love. Be real in your love. And then he says, seek to show hospitality. <laughs> seek to show hospitality. That's another good practical way. When's the last time you had somebody, one of your Christian brothers or sisters, over to your house with you? I know we get busy in all kinds of things and we get tied up in this and that. But he says, make that a priority. Make it a priority. Make it a part of your life. Welcoming people over. Seeing to their needs. Letting them see how you live. And you know, that's the shame part. A lot of us don't want people coming to our house. Oh, man, I got to clean up first. <laughs> but that's a shame. They ought to see how you live. 
If you're ashamed of that, you ought to straighten that out so that you can welcome them over. It's not the size or the cost of your house. It's that you care about ministering to God's people. And that you use everything that God gives you for his glory. Isn't that what it means to not love the world, but to love God, to love his people, and to use the things and love people instead of loving things and using people? Use everything that God has given you for his glory in ministering to God's people first. Make that a priority. And I'm not telling you that you don't, you shouldn't give to United Way or you shouldn't give to charities or things like that. You can give, but as much as you give there, make your first priority the fleshing out, the working out of God's people. Let me ask you a question. How many people at work do you know that are true believers? Have you tried to get to know them? Have you talked with them? I mean, sure, they may be going to another church and, and, and they can't go to the same church with you while they're faithful at their church. I understand that, but do you know them? Do you make friends with them? Do you make it a point to get to know them? They are believers. Do you fellowship with them? Do you pray for them? Do you encourage them? <coughs> Connecting with God's people's people in real ways. Make the people of God a priority in your day, in your life, in your walk, so that it becomes the principle of your life. Jesus said this in John 13. This is how the world will know that you're a believer, because you love one another. How do they see that in your life? Let it be seen he also said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine. Let it be seen. Let your love for one another be apparent. Now I'm going to close with this. Stop being picky. Stop being picky in your love. You know, we have people that we get along with and people not so much. We need to stop that. We need to stop that because what matters in eternity <laughs> is the relationships that, that we have <coughs> and that ministering that we need to do to one another. Part of that is the forbearance of one another. I was telling the story of we were painting the side of the, the church building several years ago, and... Uh, it was late summer, maybe early fall, and as we were painting, maybe it was the smell of the paint, but there was bees that were attracted to the paint as we were painting on the wall. And we were up on a ladder. And so a bee decided to come around while I was up on the ladder, and it made me think, I don't like this bee around me. I'm not comfortable with this bee around me. But you know what? I ain't finna jump off this ladder. I'm way up on this ladder, and I'm not going to even swat it if it gets on my arm because I have one hand on the ladder and the other with a, a paintbrush in my hand. What I decided to do is I don't have time to go after this bee. I got a job to do. And if it stings me, it stings me. But that ain't going to kill me. I'm not allergic to bee stings. It's not going to kill me. 
It may hurt for a little bit. But what may kill me is if I overreact to this bee and fall off this ladder and really hurt myself. So I made a decision. The bee was insignificant. I made that decision that the bee was insignificant, that I was going to treat it like it was nothing else, and I was going to go about my regular business. Why? Because there was more important things at risk and more important things to do. I encourage us to develop that attitude as we work with each other. Amen? I'm not going to let this be stop me from doing the job that I have to do, and I'm not going to make it my whole focus or distracts me from how I should perform what God wants me to do. I'm going to go about my business, whether this distraction is there or not. Stop being petty in your love. I can't sit with brother so-and-so. I can't sing next to so-and-so. They always off-key. And so I'm going to quit the choir. Stop being petty in your love. We have a job to do. And it's more important than that little, how big is that big? It's just that big. And it's just buzzing around. Ignore it. How can I ignore it? Ignore it. Because there's more important things to do. That's called forbearance. You say, I wish this bee would stop bothering me. And this bee has a name, doesn't it? <laughs> this bee has a name and a face. And you would think that, hey, if they were listening to the same sermon you were listening to, they'd stop bothering you. Maybe they should and maybe they will. But what are you going to do is the question. Stop being petty in our love. We have a job to do. We have work to do, and I look at what God has called us to do in this, in this ministry, and the great need for faithfulness, whether it's with truth seekers or the Sunday school or, or people who's just going to faithfully teach our children, being done in Sunday school, uh, uh, being faithful in any part of this church ministry. We do so many things that require faithfulness. We cannot afford to get distracted By, by things that do not deserve our full attention. God deserves it. This work deserves it. And we ought to love God to show it that way. We ought to love each other to put up with a few bee stings for the sake of following Christ, for the sake of accomplishing what will count for eternity. Father, we pray you would prick our hearts in those areas that we are complacent in, those areas that we need a nudge in and we're not budging. I pray that you would move. You would use your Holy Spirit, you would use your word to bring to mind, to remind us, to challenge us, to shake us up, motivate us, to encourage us, to rebuke us in all the ways that are pleasing to you. May we demonstrate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved 
sinful me. Though I would disappoint him time and time again, he loved me so much that he would willingly go on the cross, nails in his hand, spear in his side, thorns across his face, spit running down his face, whip stripe after stripe across his flesh, the pain that he endured willingly for me. There's no greater love than what he showed for me. May that motivate me in loving you, Father, loving the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and loving those whose hearts you have touched. bringing glory to you. Lord, there's decisions that need to be made today as a result of hearing your word. And I pray you would not allow us to escape those decisions, but you would challenge us to make those decisions right now, those practical things that we need to do. As I close this time of prayer, I'm going to ask my wife if she would join me in the back. We'd love to just greet you and talk with you. And as your head remains bowed, your eyes closed, I'm going to ask Brother Cliff Hill if he would close this service in a word of prayer. <clears throat>